Do you feel politically homeless? Lost in the chaos of modern politics? Not sure who to believe? Democrats call him a Republican. Republicans call him a socialist. He is Stephen Reynolds, the man in the middle. Welcome to the Man in the Middle podcast, season two, episode four. I'm Stephen Reynolds, your host, recording today from the historic WGNS studios, located in the heart of the great volunteer state, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Well, folks, thanks for listening, tuning in. Had a lot of great feedback on last week's podcast. Uh, we've heard a lot from veterans, to be uh, in particular, and uh, we really appreciate the feedback. of calling this uh, uh, today the coronavirus edition. We have the um, coronavirus out there now that's causing uh, uh, some nervousness in the market uh, and with people regarding their health and our ability to respond to a global pandemic. I'm really glad that we have a lot of educated scientists and doctors that are working on this for us that are trying to develop a vaccine um, and trying to prevent the spread of this terrible um, disease. And you know, folks, there's a lot of smart people working on this. And all of those people, they all started in a classroom, most likely in a public school classroom. And these are the folks that have educated themselves or or have been educated by our system in educating themselves and are tackling today's problems. This is why education is so important to our society. The coronavirus is just one example of why education is so important. You know, but our teachers oftentimes, they're, they're not just educators. In today's society, in a lot of ways, they're surrogate parents for these children. There's a lot of kids out there from broken homes and bad situations, and our teachers are on the front lines of those situations every single day. Sometimes a hug from a teacher may be the only attention a child receives all day. A word of encouragement, a direct acknowledgement, all of these things impact the future of our country, and our teachers are on the front lines of this. And so let's, today's episode, we're going to learn more about education in the state of Tennessee from an expert who spent over 30 years of her life dedicated to educating the children of Tennessee right here in Rutherford County. I'm Stephen Reynolds, your host, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Man in the Middle podcast, season two, episode four. Joining me today is Miss Judy Whitehill, a career educator, former president of the uh, Tennessee Educators Association, and a member of the Rutherford County Election Commission. Judy, welcome to the Man in the Middle. 
Thank you, Stephen. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's it's great to have you here too, Judy. We've tried a couple of times, and we've had a lot of things going on. And and but but thank you so much for joining us. I know a lot of people will be interested in some of the things that you have to say today. But first, why don't you talk a little bit about your background, where you were born, raised, went to school, those types of things? Okay. Well, I was actually born in Lebanon, Wilson County, but okay. we lived in Smith County. But mother came to the hospital in Lebanon. I moved to Nashville when I was about three and then went to the public schools there until we, um, we moved to Murfreesboro. I was in high school. Okay. Graduated from Murfreesboro Central in 1969. I went to MTSU, got my bachelor's degree in speech and language pathology and went back and got my master's. So I've been here since 1966 in Rutherford County. 1966 in Rutherford County. And you taught here in the city school system for how long, Judy? Uh, close to 30 years. 30 I years. taught um, as a speech therapist and then as a library media specialist. Okay. Well, that's quite a career. I'm sure you've seen a lot. Uh, with uh, And a lot of your students succeed and go on and be uh, great citizens and professionals and those Ab- types of things. Absolutely. I'm really proud to have heard from parents that two of my speech students have they themselves become speech therapists in their career. Isn't that something? So that's always interesting and exciting. It's kind of funny that folks like that are so inspired by their teachers uh, that they pursue that. And so I, I know that they're very grateful for the time that you, all of your students are grateful for the time that you gave uh, uh, to, the, to them and to the citizens here in Rutherford County. Let's start with the election, Judy. Okay. You're on the Rutherford County Election Commission. Yes. Early voting is now over as we record this podcast today. Uh, but this Tuesday is what's March the 3rd will be Super Tuesday. So can you talk a little bit about where people can vote, how they can vote, all of those things. So if you haven't gone out and voted yet, please let the folks know how to do that, Judy. Well, certainly. Uh, of course, as Stephen, as you said, the early voting sites now are closed. We had eight of those. Uh, actually had a new one this year that was in the Smyrna area, which was important for the citizens on our north end of the county. So now that Election Day is upon us next Tuesday, we have... Um, 28 voting sites. Great. One thing that is very unique about Rutherford County, and many people out there may know this already, but Rutherford County was part of a pilot project Mm -hmm. uh, two or three years ago Mm -hmm. where they wanted to have convenient voting sites. And so at that point, what they did, they established the voting sites, but they said to the citizenry, you do not have to go to your precinct. You may go to any voting site, regardless of where it is in relation to where you live. And that's been very helpful. Isn't that great? So, folks, you can vote anywhere. Anywhere in Rutherford County. In Rutherford County. Exactly. If you live here, it doesn't matter where you go. And there are how many? 28? 28. 28 stations to vote. So um, let's get out there, folks. Let's get out there and vote this Super Tuesday. Judy, do you have to have... Uh, This question came up with some of the folks that we know about voter identification and uh, the new Homeland Security rule. Can you tell me what the name of that is? Real ID, I think is what they call it. It's called the Real ID, and it has a star on it. And someone just today asked me if they had to have one of those new driver's license to be able to vote. And I told them, absolutely not. In fact, it's interesting that you can use an expired 
driver's license, okay. if it's a Tennessee driver's license, to, to vote. The new driver's license with the STAR is through, as you said, Homeland Security, but it is solely for the purpose of traveling. Gotcha. So that's a great clarification because I think a lot of our voters out there are asking this question. A lot of people are confused about the new Real ID anyway and what is the time frame on that. But I think it's great news that folks don't have to go do that before they go vote. Is that is that what you're saying, Judy? Exactly. And it's very important. We don't want to panic people who want to vote. We want them to be able to feel confident in coming and presenting a valid picture ID for as a Tennessee driver's license, or if you have a passport, you can use that, or you can use um, a military ID. So those are the types of things that you can use. You don't even have to have your voter card. Now that we don't have precincts, you don't have to have it. Just show that picture ID and they can find you on the computer. And they can find you from there. So we have a lot of new folks that are moving into Rutherford County every day. People from not inside the state of Tennessee, folks moving in from various states. Tennessee has an open primary system, is what it's called. Can you explain that to the voters out there, Judy, what an open primary means? When they show up to vote, what will happen? When they go to the stations where the people are, the workers are behind the computers, they present their picture ID, and then that uh, worker will find them in the system. Mm -hmm. And then they will be asked, do you want to vote in the Democratic or the Republican primary? You do have to state which one you're going to vote in. So then when you uh, sign the paperwork, they'll give you a slip of paper that you take to the machine operator, and then they know how to set it up depending on which party you're going to be voting in. Right. So you will have to choose Democrat or Republican uh, in this primary process. But when we get to the general election, you can vote for anybody. Is that correct? That is correct. You do not have to designate which party you're voting in. You just vote in the general election. Judy, what's the uh, any idea how early voting has looked this year? Are we about on pace for what normal early vote? I know a lot of people can't wait till the very first day of early voting. And so you get this spike, you get this really high number on the first day, and then it starts dwindling off. Is there any indication right now uh, that you can give us that that we're on pace for uh, 2016, or is there any indication that voting is up, or does it seem about average? Well, I haven't gotten, we haven't had a meeting since we started early voting, so I don't have any specifics other than uh, someone told me they felt like that the numbers were up across the county for early voting, and that's the only information that, that I have. That's interesting, you know. And I'll get this is a political show, and yes. we do try to run right down the middle so that uh, so that we can get Republicans to come on this show. Um, to be quite honest, but but uh, um, a lot of Democrats are waiting until Super Tuesday. Have you talked to folks? A lot of people I'm talking to, Judy, they they were unsure about which candidate. Now, the Republicans are all locked in. They're going in. They're voting for President Trump. And President Trump doesn't have any real opposition. There's one race here that's contested in the Republican primary. But are you seeing folks this time kind of wait to vote uh, to see what happens in some other states? Do you think that's a trend? I think it is because, first of all, in 2016, we just basically had two candidates in the primary. Uh, 
And so at this point, with still so many viable candidates, I think people, two things, they're kind of waiting to see how things are shaking out in other states. But I also think they're still listening. They're listening to debates and they're talking to friends and trying to make up their mind. I was at a luncheon today and someone who was speaking said, by the way, how many of you have already early voted? Half of the room, and there were about 70 people, half of the room raised their hand that they'd already voted. Okay. Early, early voted. Okay. But about 50% hadn't. Yes. And and so I think that's really interest, an interesting dynamic that's developing in this election cycle uh, is kind of the delay. I, I mean, I can tell you personally, I've done the same thing. I've, I call it dating. I have dated every <laughs> candidate. Uh, find myself coming back to my initial uh, preference. I haven't told folks who that is yet. Right. Uh, I don't think they'll be very surprised. But uh, but it's. I think you know the Democrats are taking a lot of heat right now uh, because it's very competitive. Um, we, you and I both know that primaries are pretty uh, are pretty nasty business. Well, they can be, and I think we saw that in 2016 on the Republican side. Yes. We had a lot of candidates. There were a lot of of things said people wanted later to take those things back but yeah i think anytime that you have a diverse group and the number at least that we started with you're going to have some controversy first of all those people are trying to make their way out of the pack and you know make sure that people remember who they are so that depends you know on uh i guess who has the most in the the um, initial primaries right it, last time it was the republicans this time it's the democrats yeah, and, and so judy you've you've been around this a long time you you've been heavily <laughs> like involved it. you're the best parliamentarian <laughs> i have ever seen in action well thank you and for the <laughs> listeners out there if you don't understand what what, a, what the role of the parliamentarian is but that's the person that makes sure that we follow the rules in all of the meetings and and i've seen you in action i know you've seen a lot of this this is a pretty serious question that a lot of Democrats are asking right now. Can the Democrats unite around their eventual nominee? Well, I hope if they are listening to the voters that they'll know they have to because that's one of the things that two or three people spoke today and they said whoever is the candidate has to have the backing of all the people voting. And I think at this point we're looking at our purpose, which is to bring a Democrat to the White House, mm-hmm. and everyone who is voting in the primary, if their person wins or not, they're going to have to go back to the general election and vote as a Democrat. That's the only way to make that change. So a massive turnout. I see that, yes. Mm-hmm. And and I think I'm seeing so many more young people, not necessarily college age, but I would say young professionals, mm-hmm. anyone under the age maybe of 35, they are very um, motivated to in, make sure that they um, educate themselves about the people running, mm-hmm. about the issues, and then they're determined to vote. Well, that's a great positive sign right there, Judy, because, you know, all of the typical numbers, it's usually folks our age that go vote. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I think that one of the things that the Sanders campaign continues to talk about is how they can energize young people. Um but, but, you know, to the levels that President Obama did, I think that that's questionable whether or not Bernie Sanders actually does that. But, but um, I just hope that we can see the, the unification uh, of the people because there is a lot of um, nastiness out there right now. Well, I, I 
was a delegate in 2016. I was a Hillary delegate in uh-huh. Philadelphia. So Wonderful. I did see evidence of some people who could not quite change their mind once right. we got to well, the let's, convention. Let's talk about that. Okay. You witnessed that I in did. 2016. Yes. You were there. And the truth is, is that there were Bernie Sanders delegates that refused to unify with the party nominee is that is that a that is absolutely correct yes yes mm-hmm. because in fact our tennessee delegation where from where we were sitting the state in front of us uh had very um diverse views about who they wanted to support and even though a lot of people began to be swayed as they were sitting there listening to speeches there were a few holdouts who would not vote right for hillary right was, very interesting yeah and yeah. and to see that split in the party and and to see that coming, because the Republicans have obviously gone through the same thing. Right. They went through this in 2016 when yes. uh, President Trump eviscerated Jeb Bush. I mean, just Ted Cruz just started knocking them down. Yes. And um, uh, I know a lot of lifelong Republicans that to this day are still not very happy about how that went down. How do we get past the Republicans, the Democrats? How do we get past these hard feelings, Judy? I'm going to put you on the spot. It's such well, a tough question. It is tough. It is tough. And I've thought about this a lot. I'm 68 years old, and I've seen lots of um, elections come and go. I've always voted in every election since I was 21 when I was eligible at that point to vote. So I guess there have been times when I've had to hold my nose and vote mm-hmm. just because I, the person who was the candidate stood for my values. They may have not been my favorite or the person that I started with, but I had to look at the two right. uh, platforms and decide which one speaks more to my values. And if we really do want to make the changes that we need in healthcare, public education, the environment, we're going to have to go with the candidate who best suits our uh, standards and our values. Uh, our closest ally. Exactly. Uh, some people will say the lesser of two evils. We hear, well, we've heard that before. But, you know, I think that's what's been lost, Judy, is the understanding that there's no perfect candidate. Right. And that candidates have to build coalitions. And those coalitions have, a, in the Democratic Party, which is the big tent party. Right. Which I often... I'm starting to question that when I see what's happening right now. Are we really the big tent party? Um, you know, that those types of things, how do we, we – we've got to build that coalition back together. A lot of folks refer to 2008-2012 as the Obama coalition. Right. But, but, but essentially all successful candidates, especially for president, have to build those coalitions. Would you agree with that, Judy? I guess what I'm trying to tell folks is there's no perfect candidate. Exactly. That is exactly true. Even in your, I tell people this, even in your own family, you're going to disagree with someone, whether it's a brother or sister or mother or father. When yeah. you have get-togethers, you try to stay away from certain topics. Sometimes, sure. you know, this has been very uh, difficult for people. But right. you, you're always going to have differences. So what you have to do is to find the things you do agree on and build right. on that. And one thing that really bothers me, I've heard in the last probably four, eight, 12 years at election time, people say, well, my vote really doesn't matter and I'm not even going to participate or all politics are rotten. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get involved. And that's where I just have to say, 
wait a minute. If you abdicate your right to have a, vo- a vote and a voice, then you don't have the right to say anything about the way things are going, not at the local level, the state, or federal. You have got to be involved and take part. And that's something I've believed in all my life. I've been um, very involved in my education association. Mm-hmm. Some people say union, and that's fine, too. Um And I've always told people who said, well, I don't really want to be a part of it. I don't want to pay the dues or I don't want to get involved in politics. And I said, well, we're the ones who help make your profession what it is. You know, for example, in education, the rules and laws that are made determine your class size, determines how much money you have in your classroom fund. Everything about your profession is determined by usually a political decision, whether it's at the state level as the State Board of Education or the legislators or at your local level as a school board. And I said, if you want to have any uh, say about what's happening in your profession, then you've got to vote and you've got to vote for people if their uh, issues or or values line up with yours and what they're running on. If that's something that you want to see as improvement in your profession, you've got to to be active and vote. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great explanation of one of the reasons why the teachers' union is so important, um, about why voting is so important. You know, folks that say that my vote doesn't count, I always bring up the Jim Tracy Scott Desjardins primary. Jim Tracy had 84,000 votes uh, cast in this election, lost that primary by 37 votes. Now, if people's vote it really mattered in that election. Well, even beyond that, uh, my county commissioner, he yeah. won by three votes. Three votes. And so You're talking I, about I, Shanto. I am, and, yeah. and I, I laughingly told him that uh, two of our neighbors and, and I all voted for him, and I said, we got you in there or kept you in there, and he laughed. So every single vote does count. And you can't it, you can't discount the importance of that. Yes, and especially on the local level. Exactly. Right. I mean, and that's really where the rubber meets the road uh, is on the local level. So, Judy, you touched on education there, and I'd like to go ahead and get started. And let's talk about education and the state of education today. I, I want to start at the very top. Okay. Betsy DeVos. <laughs> Wish we had a camera, folks. Uh, <laughs> Betsy DeVos. Have you seen anything to indicate that Betsy DeVos is advancing the Department of Education? Not for public education. I think she's probably trying in her way to advance her ideas, which uh, tend to want to push the charter school systems and Mm -hmm. vouchers. Right. Um, I used to, when I was more active and still teaching, we would hear lots of stories about what was coming out of her home state and how she and uh, the Amway products and all that were being used to, to fund the charter schools that they were so excited about. Mm-hmm. And so imagine my shock as a retired educator when I heard that she had been named to be the Secretary of Education. Yeah. At first I thought it was a bad dream, and then I realized it wasn't. And I do not see any evidence that she is helping to promote public education, that she's working to help get our special needs programs funded or English as a Second Language or any of the other things that have been hard fought and won over the last 40 years. It's like everything has been diminished in a short period of time. 
Yeah, I think so, and I think that's a pretty good description of what I've seen so far is really just the push on the charters and the private, basically to divert the taxpayer funds into a private coffer. Exactly, and I've always said I have no objection to parents putting their child in a private school. If they want to do that and if they have the funds, that's fine. But the public schools were put in place hundreds of years ago to give every child the opportunity to have a free and appropriate public education. And every time that they decide they're going to have another charter school or a voucher system, it just dilutes the money that's put in. And it's ironic because parents who have children who have special needs, whether it be they need speech therapy or they need a special education IEP, whatever it is, they never find that in the charter or voucher schools. They don't have those programs, so they have to send them, they they let them stay in that school and then come to the public school for their speech therapy or for their special programs. Right, so so they still leech off of the public system. Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. And again, I'll go back to say a parent who wants to take their child to a private school, that is indeed their right, but they should be able to fund it. And by saying, well, every child deserves to be able or every parent deserves to be able to pick their school – With the money that they're trying to allocate for a voucher program, it doesn't begin to touch on the um, tuition for a private school. And they also don't have um, public transportation, so they have to provide their own transportation. If the parents have a work schedule that make it hard to get their children there, they're not going to be able to take advantage of it. They also don't have extra funding for uniforms, for books, for special programs. So it's really not benefiting the children that they say it's most in need of it it's just putting icing on the cake for those who can already afford it so judy this is going to sound a bit nefarious and i and i don't think that that people intentionally uh meant for this to be a consequence but isn't this just another way to segregate the school system absolutely I've said that for a long time. I said it's kind of like I don't want my child with those children, whoever those children are. And it is a way for them to just selectively pick up their child and put them in an area where it's more homogenous. And I tell people, you know, we live in a very diverse society, and you might be able to isolate your child for a few years in a particular school environment, But they are going to grow up, and they're going to be in a world full of people who don't always look, think, or act like them. They need the skills to be able to interact, to be able to work with anyone and everyone. That's not to say that that has to change their morals, values, whatever they want to call it, but they have to know how to deal with Everyone and diversity, right? And diversity. I mean, dealing with diversity exactly is is uh, something that every American child today, and uh, and so um, anyway, I don't think that they're intentionally nefariously, but but I think the unintended consequence is the resegregation of our school systems. Right. Well, that's when actually when they started to uh, desegregate is when a lot of small independent church schools and homeschool situations began to spring up because they just had to, you know, they felt like protect their child. And it's really sad that they would have that thought. And, 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 of course, I'm moving on to the state of Tennessee, which is now trying this program, which, by the way, has failed in multiple states, has oh, been yes. a black hole for taxpayer money. Well, that there's is no a accountability. Fact. There's no transparency. Talk I was actually that. talking yeah. to uh, 
uh, someone today who had been a commissioner of education in the state, and we were talking about that very thing, and we said um, that what's happening is they're making more and more uh, standards in place for people who want to teach in the public schools. Mm-hmm. If, if Whatever university they're going to, they're making it more difficult. But anyone can go in and teach in a charter or, or right. private school. You and without, I could start one tomorrow. Exactly. You mm-hmm. don't have to have any kind of rules that you go by. No transparency. And yet you have this chunk of public money that you're going to use for your own discretion. Yeah, that that's kind of my next question. Are these students in these private schools, not, not, I'm not talking about, but I'm, are they living up to the same expectations that a public school standard is? Well, now, I will say, because I want to be very open about everything, uh, there are some private schools across the state who do want to hold high standards, and they do follow the some of the rules from the State Department. Mm-hmm. They do the testing and this sort of thing. So they choose to do that. But the word choose, though other places do not have to, and many choose not to. Right. They don't want to have to abide by the rules. They want to take the money, but they don't want any strings attached. Right. Isn't that funny? Yes. Uh, And, you know, the other ironic thing, and I've seen the list, Judy, of all of the schools that have already applied in Tennessee. Most of them are faith-based schools. Yes. Nothing in the world wrong with a faith-based school if that's where you want your child to go. But I think it's really ironic that we have faith-based institutions that pay zero taxes, no property tax, no federal tax, no anything taxes, and now we're subsidizing by sending charter school money, by sending this money to these uh, faith-based organizations, we are subsidizing these organizations, the taxpayers are. Do you agree with that, Judy? Do you think that that don't I, you think that's a little bit I over think the top? It, no, it's not a little bit. It's a lot over the top, and it's certainly going over the line between church and state. I think if they do not want to have to be told these are the rules in place, these are the this is the curriculum you teach, these are the standards. If they don't want to abide by that, then they don't get any money. You can't have it both ways. Exactly. Except, but they're trying. They're trying. Yeah. And and what's so sad is there are people in leadership in the state who are proponents of that, and because they can, they're making inroads into trying to make sure that at least this time for Nashville, Memphis, that they start the voucher systems. Of course, there have been lawsuits filed. We'll see how that. Right, and there was a lot of questions about how that entire process went down in the state legislature as well. Exactly. I think there's that's going to be a major campaign issue coming up. Uh, Well, I read or saw the other day that one of the people who voted for it now wants to bring up another bill to change it because there was a lot of arm twisting, and he said that that was not the way you go about this. So we may see this opened up again before the session's over. Yeah, I think so. I I think that, um, well, the last I heard, the FBI was involved in that, Oh, yes, Judy. TBI. So, TBI and mm-hmm, FBI are mm-hmm. both involved in that. Very interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. back to being the parliamentarian, Judy. <laughs> um, I, I know politics is an arm-twisting game. I, I understand that. Right. But but that's pretty disturbing that we are uh, could have potentially violated state or federal law in the passage of this voucher bill in Tennessee. I agree. It is. So, Judy, one more question on this. Okay. What do you think about Democrats that support charter schools? 
Well, it's been very disappointing to me because I know a couple in Nashville. Yeah. Well, they're they're not in Nashville. They're from Memphis, but they have been very big on that. I don't know if they were given misinformation initially and they thought it was something different than what it has turned out to be, mm-hmm. or if they um, just felt like they wanted people in their district to have that opportunity. I have no problem with people deciding to do something like that, parents, if they have researched it and they know what it involves. But unfortunately, I think the information out there makes it sound better than it really is. Of course, it's a, they've got a marketing department. Of exactly, course they do. Yeah. Exactly. And just because you want your child to participate doesn't mean that you're going to be in there because they have numbers that they cap. Right. And they only accept so many. Right. So, you know, if we just keep, as you said, draining, siphoning off that money from the public schools, mm-hmm. those, the children in the public schools have less and less. Let, as far as technology, right. the mm-hmm. teachers don't have the money for the materials or the training, how to use the technology. It's just, it becomes a vicious cycle. Absolutely. Let, let's shift a little bit, Judy. Let's talk about the classroom environment today. Okay. And what I want to talk about is a little, is, you know, a 40,000-foot view. But students today, there's a lot of unstable homes out there. There's a lot of students that are uh, going through a lot when they're not on campus. And as a result of that, is it, we see a lot of that reflected back in behavior in the classrooms. Are we seeing... This is and and I think the teachers a lot of times take the hit for this, but this is really a societal problem and a cultural problem that we're going through, and our teachers are just on the front lines of that. Would you agree with that, Judy? I do, and I think it's really difficult. It, again, as I said, sometimes things get in a cycle. Several years ago, if you remember, uh, the um, state board decided that the State Board of Education decided that people who had a degree in something, let's say math or science, that because of their knowledge that they could come in and teach that subject in high schools. Well, as professional educators, we argued that. We said it's fine to know your subject matter, but there are also things involved in uh, classroom management and knowing how to to determine if a child has a problem and needs a a special... um, something geared to the way they learn, all this type of thing. So we encouraged the state board not to change the rules to let just anyone with a bachelor's degree come in and teach. Well, that, of course, didn't happen. It went on, and they passed it. And many of those people who were very knowledgeable and were great people realized they weren't cut out to teach. So what you do is you start diluting your standards and your requirements, and then – you have people come in, and what happens is the children lose because this person who's come in to teach, let's say, physics, they're only there a year. So then the school system scrambling to find another person to teach it. So some places, especially in rural areas, they can't find the teachers to come and teach some of those skills, you know, trigonometry and all those things. So the children lose. They, they don't get to benefit from that. Mm-hmm. And that all stems from diluting the requirements and then it all has a backlash on children's behavior right the fact that we have a lot of homeless children a lot of homeless teenagers uh they come to school and the the first thing on their mind is not 
oh, I did my homework assignment. It's, it's like, breakfast. Oh, my gosh, I didn't have anything to eat. Right. Or I have a sibling that I had to try to take care of right. and worry about them. Right. There's so many things. And now, of course, with all of the issues that have happened in our school with gun violence, uh, yes. that's another thing I heard on NPR the other day. They were talking to people who had been in a school where there had been just the drills. They hadn't had an actual incident, but they were doing the drills. And they were talking about how some of those people were traumatized by that because they just sat in fear of wondering, will this happen? Because they were kind of keeping it in the forefront. They'd have this drill every couple of weeks. So there's so many things out there impacting negatively impacting our students that I feel sorry for our students and I feel sorry for the teachers who are trying to do it all and be everything to everyone. And and that's why Rutherford County has a tough time recruiting teachers now. That's why Davidson County and Middle Tennessee State uh, just try it was founded as a teacher, teacher college yeah. yeah the normal school yes yeah. well in fact i was told you i was talking to someone today who had been a commissioner of education and she was telling me that the uh numbers who are coming into mtsu to want to be a teacher they're half of what they were four or five years ago and we used to lead the state in number of teacher candidates yeah. and there and she said and it's not only impacting mtsu it's all across the state mm-hmm. and i'm sure outside of the state right uh and of course you know we rank 45th in what we spend on per pupil expenditure right. here in tennessee People say, thank goodness for Mississippi, you know. They right, laugh. and Alabama, but, but, right. But, yeah. Well, no, even Alabama's yeah, even ahead Alabama's of us ahead sometimes. Of us. Yeah. No kidding. So it, it's just a <laughs> – but it, it goes back to <laughs> yeah. the fact that they have started making people think that our schools are not successful. I, I hate when people say, we need to improve our schools. Well, actually, our schools are really doing a great job with the small amount of money and funding they're getting. We just need to keep supporting them and funding them, fully funding them. You know, it'd be like anything. If you told a surgeon, here, you go operate in this room, but here's some needle and thread. We don't have any equipment for you. We, we're, You know, you can't use an x-ray machine. You can't use a CAT scan. They're going to suffer regardless of their skills, same way in education. And people have got to realize that, that money is what we're going to have to have appropriately funding our schools. Right. And, you know, I think that a lot of times, and and education takes a big part of our budgets, right? Oh, yes. And, of course, we live in a state where no one's wanted to raise taxes for 20 years. Right. I mean, and so the the old country saying, Judy is the dog has finally caught the car. Uh, We've pretty much topped out. Uh, You know, taxes are going up all over the state. Property taxes are going up uh, because, you know, basically these cost of education has been pushed down uh, to the local level. Uh, But, uh, Judy, I hear your passion. It's just remarkable what you've done. You were the first uh, TEA president to visit all 95 counties in the state of Tennessee. Is that correct? Well, I I think I was. Um, I just decided when I came in as TA president that our members needed to see uh, an evidence that at the state level we had their concerns at heart. And so it helped me also to be a better educator, to be able to go out, see what type of programs they were doing. It was miraculous, I mean, to see what they were doing, the great gains they were making with small amounts of equipment or maybe their schools i went in one school and there were literally holes in the ceiling this is in shelby county and they were struggling Mm -hmm. in many cases but they were doing a wonderful job of instruction and different type of programs they were doing i i would bring those thoughts back 
and um, some of share some of our, with the rest of the well, state. And mm-hmm. sometimes um, our uh, editor of our newspaper would put those special stories there, or he'd go out and visit and do a special thing, and that right. makes people understand that they're being listened to mm-hmm. and what they're doing is very important. Well, I think it's important too to understand the diversity. Oh, you know, yes. people always ask me about the three stars on the Tennessee flag. And a lot, once again, folks, we have a lot of people moving in here from other places. And I'm like, well, that's the three grand divisions. There is an incredible difference in the school systems in the three grand divisions. Would you agree with that, Jenny? Oh, absolutely. I saw it every day I'd visit. Mm-hmm. I might be in East Tennessee for a couple of days and then go back over to West Tennessee. Yeah. And just depending on what school I was at or, or the size of the school system, numerous differences. But everybody wanted to share their success stories. It when it was That was one thing that was very interesting. People didn't want to complain and tell me this is bad. This They'd say, oh, let me just tell you about this reading program I'm doing. Or I or, uh, went to a, a school where they were uh, growing corn fish and they were selling them back to japan it was you know just unique things all over the state yeah incredible so one last thing i want to touch on judy we've got a we've got a few more minutes um my favorite governor of my lifetime was ned ray mcwhorter now for those native tennesseans you know we just have to say ned ray yes that's all we have (laughs) to say and everybody here knows he was one of the most outstanding uh, governors that the state of Tennessee and Lee, he, before he was the governor, he was in the legislature a long right. time. He's speaker of the house. He was the speaker of the house. Um, Judy, talk about your experience with Governor McWhorter. Well, please. actually, it's very interesting you brought that up because he was the governor who decided he was really going to make education his priority, and it was not talking the talk; it was walking the walk. What he did was he sent out across the state notices to all the school systems and it had to filter down to the teachers for them to write down the top five things they needed or wanted to um, happen imagine that imagine that how and, novel of and an you idea know what? Is that? this is what was even more novel it goes kind of what i said earlier the teachers didn't say oh i need a salary increase or i need this or that they said smaller class sizes more technology uh making sure that the learning environment you know that we don't have holes in our ceilings making sure that we're Uh, meeting the needs of the children at their level so that we have special programs like speech and we have special education and we have gifted programs and all of these. The five things that they asked for, he came back to the legislatures and said, this is where we need to put our money and this is what we need to do. So he really was a person who was committed to the public schools and doing what the teachers asked him to do. And something interesting, you know, he was always known to like – Vanilla Wafers. Right. He invited, uh, and oh, I, I don't know if I said this, but I was on the State Board of Education okay. because of him. Okay. He decided we needed a teacher on the State Board. At that point, we had wonderful people, but they were CEOs and business people. They had no public education background as far as teaching there. So I was asked to serve on it, which I did for seven years. It was a wonderful experience, and he invited all of us to come to the uh, governor's mansion one day for lunch. And I happened to be sitting right next to him, and they served this really pretty dessert. And I looked over, and he was whispering something to the server. And all of a sudden, they brought out a plate of vanilla wafers <laughs> for him to eat because that was his favorite. <laughs> but he truly loved students and yeah. believed that the teachers knew best. Yeah, I think uh, Ned Ray McWhorter transformed. Once again, if you're not from here, folks, you won't understand how he transformed the state of Tennessee, not only with education, but with infrastructure as well. Oh. 
He these four lane highways that you drive to, uh, he he uh, had a deal that he was going to build a four. If it if your town was next to an interstate or the county seat was not connected to the interstate, he built four lane highways to the county seat. I don't think folks understand what it was like before we had four lane highways. From, but it was like driving on a mule trail in 1975 around here. Funny story. He had a little road grader that he kept on his desk. Yeah. And this came from someone who knew him. They said that he had been trying to get the legislators to pass a certain bill where the money would be designated for road improvements, road and bridge. And he said that he had someone in his own party who kept refusing to vote. So he called him in and had him sit down and he said, do you see this right here? He said, yes, sir. He said, what is it? He said, well, it's a road grader. He said, yes, take a good look because if you don't vote for this funding bill, that's the last one you'll ever see. You won't see one in your county. <laughs> well, <So>. sometimes <laughs> that's how it's done. Back to the that's arm right. twisting thing, you know. So, But uh, Judy, anything else you'd like? It's been a wonderful interview. Thank you so much. I always learn something when I'm with you. And uh, you've talked me even more today is there anything else you'd like to add to the listeners for the man in the middle podcast i just want to say if you have not already voted please vote regardless of how you plan to vote it is so important and i tell people it is not just a right it's a responsibility and i will listen to anybody all day long if they voted but if they start complaining and i say well did you vote and they say no i hold up my hand and i say then talk to the hand because i'm not going to listen to you so if you want to have people listen to you if you want to make a difference vote yes and vote your conscience right, right now folks absolutely miss judy whitehill thank you for joining us today you're welcome Stephen. always a pleasure i'm Stephen reynolds the man in the middle and we'll be right back Welcome back to the Man in the Middle podcast, Season 2, Episode 4. Once again, we'd like to thank Miss Judy Whitehill for that fantastic interview about the public education system and her experience. In addition, reminding us about uh, the primary election coming up next week. You know, folks, we are at a crossroads in our society. Some of the young people that are coming out of our classrooms today are some of the brightest, most intelligent, capable humans that, that Americans that we have ever had. But then there's also a generation and a group of, of young people that aren't excelling. And so we've got to find a way of making sure that every child gets fair opportunity and gets a decent education. I've always said that the best social program is a good job. And the way to a good job is with an education. Let's keep working together to make sure that we continue to produce the scientists and the doctors that can battle these vicious diseases. And let's make sure that we do this together. Thanks for listening this week, folks. I'm Stephen Reynolds, the man in the middle. I'll see you next week.